if things constantly need to be growing, I need to therefore be saying yes to as many opportunities as possible. I need to be saying yes to basically everything. I need to forsake my boundaries in the hopes that the ends justify the means. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. My guest today is Paul Jarvis, a writer, designer, and educator from whom I have learned quite a lot over the years. Paul writes a wonderful weekly newsletter called The Sunday Dispatches, which I highly recommend, and he also teaches two excellent online courses. But the occasion of our conversation today is the release of his new book, Company of One, which asks the question, what if the key to a richer, more fulfilling career is not to think bigger, but smaller? Against the backdrop of zero to a billion dollar Cinderella startup stories and relentless media messaging about exponential growth, Paul's book is like a breath of fresh air, advocating for the business sense, freedom, and straight-up sanity of staying small. In this conversation, we talk about so-called vanity metrics and the downside of setting big, hairy, audacious goals, why an obsession with growth tends to make us forsake our boundaries, and how defining what enough looks like in advance, and even defining what more than enough looks like in advance can help you feel less stressed and more satisfied with your work. Let's get started. Growth, exponential scale, hustling, these have become the watchwords of what it means to run a business here in 2019. But your new book, Company of One, rebels against this entire ethos and really advocates instead for this idea of staying small and being very measured about how you grow your business. So let's talk first about this idea of hustling. In the book, you cite some research by a psychologist named Wayne Oates um, from back in the 1970s in which he found that there was basically zero relationship between workaholism and greater financial reward or self-efficacy. Could you unpack that? (laughs) I, I think that being productive is is more about getting the work done at a pace and and with good results as opposed to just sitting at a desk for 80 hours a week. I think it was you who referenced a Pew study about how productivity um, decreases after about 50 hours or 55 hours of, of work each week. So I think work and workaholism is kind of this thing where it feels like we're making progress. Like if we're sitting and working for hours on end, it feels like we're getting something done. But I really think that work, I think anything really is going to fill up the space we give it. So if we say, well, work is going to be an eight hours for me today, we'll find a way to make it take eight hours. Or if it's 16 hours, well, we'll find a way to make it take 16 hours. It just fills the space. So it's just kind of, I don't know. I also think that like 
it just doesn't make sense to do that. Like it doesn't feel sustainable um, in terms of like mental health or even just in terms of being able to accomplish that workaholism over time. Like even in my own work, I, I definitely have to work very hard for short bursts. But if workaholism or overworking was my default state, even if busy was my default state, I feel like I would burn out. I feel like I would probably get sick all the time. I know when I'm really busy, I tend to get sick a lot more. And it just doesn't feel like a, a good default state to be. I would rather figure out how to be or how to have my business or how to have whatever succeed with an adequate amount of time as opposed to, well, my business only succeeds if I work 80 hours a week. Therefore, that's setting up a bad and dangerous habit too, I think. If I assume that, well, I worked 80 hours a week and my business did well this week, so I've got to do that again next week and I've got to do that again next month, next year. I think it just kind of sets itself up for, for something that I don't feel is sustainable at all. Right. It's not a sustainable business model. And that's what I thought was so interesting about that particular study that you cited was that it wasn't just that the workaholism wasn't connected to more productivity, but it also wasn't connected to any greater financial reward, right? So really that like, is my business doing better type of piece? So how does all of that kind of connect up to, you know, this idea of not necessarily feeling like you need to constantly be growing your business at this exponential pace. Yeah, I think that the 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 exponential pace or this rapid growth feels a lot like setting goals without good targets. Like it feels like in businesses like that or or in setting things like that, it's setting goals um for the sake of setting goals. And it, it's setting these artificial targets of like pie in the sky. Like I'm going to, oh, we need to like 10x this or 100x this. And it's artificial at the onset. It's artificial at the point of setting these things because maybe our business doesn't need that growth necessarily. But then as soon as we set those targets, they go from being artificial to real. We've set a target for the sake of setting a target. And then these made up numbers become something that, okay, we've set this, now we need to work towards this. These made-up numbers function then as this source of like unnecessary stress until they're either achieved with working probably far too hard or abandoned. And I think that it, when businesses run like this, it just seems like there's no stop ever in this. It's like every quarter we need to increase X by Y. And there's four quarters in a year, 40 in a decade. Like I can't imagine the amount of stress <laughs> that would be involved in every, every three months setting these like audacious, huge pie in the sky goals. Because it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like chasing goals for the sake of chasing goals. And then sometimes if we don't hit those, then we kind of can fall into a bad place of trying to hit those by any means necessary and compromising on, on ethics or compromising on values or compromising on quality. And it just, like, it's just a, it's just a dark, dark rabbit hole to, to get down. Yeah. Well, and you talk in the book about this idea that a lot of the thirst for growth is often driven by outward perception or ego, right? This idea of having other people see our, 
success um, or having what you call vanity metrics to make us feel like we're doing good in the eyes of others. Um, what exactly are vanity metrics? I think vanity metrics are quantitative data that doesn't matter, that seems like it should, that seems like, well, this is good. Like say I have 5,000 followers on social media or 10,000 um, email subscribers or 100,000 visits to my website. Like these all seem like this is something I can track. This is something that I can see progress over time with. But I think, I, again, it's just these are artificial targets because it doesn't really matter. Like how many newsletter subscribers doesn't matter if nobody's opening email or if nobody's clicking on anything or if nobody's engaging in it. Same with website traffic. If people are going to your site and then bouncing off it instantly, then how valuable how valuable is that data? And I don't think that it is. But these are these are the easy things that we can look at. These are the things that don't require um, introspection or thought or a deeper look. So these are, again, the things just like workaholism has this kind of feeling like we're making progress. When if we look at vanity metrics, it's the same thing. It feels like we can make progress with these numbers. It feels like these numbers matter. But they don't because there's no engagement. It's also if we look at numbers on these platforms, the platforms could change how things work. They could say, well, you need to pay, like Facebook did, you need to pay a bit of money to reach the people who have liked your page. And I just think that in looking at these things, it, it, they do feed our ego, but it doesn't, really, it doesn't really do anything for us past feeding our ego. But then the, the other side of that, the flip side of that, is if those things don't measure up to these artificial ideas we have in our head, or if they start to go down, then it can hurt our ego. We can feel like, oh, I didn't get as many hits <laughs> this week. Or I don't have, like my subscriber growth isn't as much as it was the week before. And even though those numbers don't matter, if we see decreases or if we see negative things happen with those, we can start to feel bad. There's been articles uh, written about how children are starting to feel depressed because they can't grow their their social media uh, profiles as fast as some of their friends, and it's just it's a it's a bad place. I think I think to get to because the like we tie these things to our self worth, and it's very difficult. Um, to deal with, like, self-worth has the word self in it. And when we tie these things to external sources, then it becomes really difficult and really dangerous to start to weigh ourselves based on external forces when we should be weighing it based on, like, internal things. Right. Well, and I'm interested in honing in on, okay, what are the metrics that we should be looking at and what are the ones that matter? Because I think we do need metrics, right? We need something to measure against. But as you say, I think what happens is we're often looking at the wrong metrics or we fail to define really any metrics in advance. So we don't even know what success looks like or what enough looks like. Um, I'll give you an example. So I just launched uh, my new online course, as you know, and prior to opening up registration, I set a very specific and in my estimation, realistic goal for how many people I wanted to book for the first launch. And I ended up meeting and exceeding that goal, which made me feel really happy about how the launch went. But it would have been really easy to set no specific goal for how many people would register. And then I could have had the exact same amount of people join the course 
but I would have felt like it wasn't successful, right? Because I hadn't set a limit, because I hadn't created a metric that said, this is what success looks like. And I think a lot of that ties back into this sort of ethos of this digital world that's very much about not setting boundaries like that, right? Instead, just sort of hoping for this kind of exponential scale. But the outcome is that you're never satisfied, right? You don't define enough. So then anything you achieve is never enough, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's upper bounds that, that we're talking about here. And it's like, if we don't have an upper bound, it's kind of the same as running towards a horizon. We feel like we're making progress. We feel like we're getting closer, but it's never actually going to happen. And I think that in having those upper bounds, then we can say like, oh, this actually, this actually worked. Like if I'd say, well, I want to make more than this much, but I, I don't need to make more than this much on, say, this launch, then we can kind of have what we, we can kind of have a place where we know we need to make enough, like pragmatically, we need to make enough to support ourselves and our lives. But past a certain amount, it's gravy past a certain amount. It's just a bonus. Because if we don't do that, then it's just everything, all of it in perpetuity, that is like the the upper bound, which becomes really difficult. I was listening to an interview on without fail with um, the nasty gal a woman, uh, Sophia Amorosa. And she was talking about how when she took on investors for the project, they decided that I think they were doing $24 million in revenue the, the current year. And they said they set this massive, huge goal that didn't even need to be set. That was just, oh, we need to, we should do $124 million the next year. And I think they did $60 million and it was a failure. <laughs> like in what situation is making $60 million considered a failure? Like it just, it doesn't make sense when we have these, these, like, I think that's just the, the, the dark side of setting these massive goals or these like huge, huge things where we're almost setting ourselves up to be unhappy, even with good outcomes. Like it just, it, it boggles my mind that we can become so unhappy or feel like such failures even if we hit something that's actually really good, even if we have made enough money, even if we have reached enough people, it's like, oh, well, it wasn't that massive goal I set. And I'm supposed to set massive goals. I'm supposed to be this, this driven person who, who wants to achieve everything in the world. But if we, don't set, if we set these things so high and it, it's almost impossible to reach them, then we're always just going to feel like, wah, wah, <laughs> and this, this didn't work out. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's that obsession with the moonshot, right? And then you, mm -hmm. you know, you only shoot the moon every once in a while. And but that what that means is that most of the time you're just really disappointed with your performance, even if that performance is, you know, maybe incredible by comparison. So how do you think that people should start to shift that perspective? Like how to actually go about setting upper bounds that are reasonable and that also are, as you were making the point earlier, sort of internally guided as opposed to being guided by these, you know, external indicators like social media following or whatnot. Yeah, I think, uh, like, I, I really do think that th this idea of enough is the like the counterbalance or the antithesis of this unchecked growth or these like audacious, massive goals. And I think enough is is kind of different for 
everybody, but it just feels like it's the it's the the weight on the other scale that balances it. Because if we start to ask ourselves things like, well, how much is enough? Right? Like it's just it's a, like a question like that. How much is enough? Like how much do I need from this thing? How will I know when I've reached enough? Because I think if we don't think about it at the onset or prior to the onset, then it's really hard to think about, well, have I reached enough yet? Have I reached enough yet? If we don't kind of define it in the beginning. And then the third thing that, that I think we, we need to look at is what will change when we hit that? And will it be good or bad, right? Because if maybe say you need to, I don't know, do $5,000 on a, on a digital launch. Well, what does, does $10,000, make if you hit 10,000 instead of 5,000 does that make things better maybe it does maybe maybe it doesn't or does hitting $20,000 make it better maybe that means you have more stress on your life because you now have to support that many people and i think if we start to think about enough and kind of the the way that we frame like how much is enough how i know when i breached it and what will change when i do then we can start to see like does more here serve my ego? Does more here serve my existing customers? Is more here better? Because a lot of times we're, we're kind of spoon-fed this idea in the, in the media and in, in business, pretty much everywhere, that more is better and that they're basically the same word, right? Like it, if they were the same word, they, they, they would be synonyms, right? Like it just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense that they're the same word. And I also think that if, if we start to say like, okay, well, maybe more isn't better. And then we can start to look at more with a more through a more critical lens because more is typically opportunities to, to get more. And I think if we don't consider every opportunity an obligation or having a maintenance cost or having some kind of debt with that opportunity, then we're always just going to assume that, yeah, more is better. Right. But it's it's not because every time more happens, there's there's a there's a back cost on that of more maintenance or more obligation or maybe more stress, more responsibility. Yeah. Well, and I think you make such a good point about setting the goal and then analyzing, okay, what happened? What actually happens if I exceed that goal? Because what actually happens is sort of that classic Kickstarter problem, right, where someone's project does like oh my God, half a million dollars. And all of a sudden they have this fulfillment nightmare on their hands because they didn't <laughs> anticipate doing that well, right? And that's and it's an instance where it is seemingly better, but the actual you know execution of delivering on that sort of more, so to speak, can be incredibly taxing and difficult. What are some examples of ways that you've seen people or for yourself have kind of defined enough and set those boundaries in ways that you think are interesting and useful? Yeah, I mean, in, in my own business, I think my news, because my newsletter is sort of the, the generator of all my revenue and kind of all roads lead to and from <laughs> my, my mailing list. I, I kind of look at it like this, where I, I know that it's at a size now where it generates enough revenue to support my life, my family, and all of that. But it's also because it has a, a weekly cadence, I get 
I don't know, 150, 250 replies every week. And that's manageable. It seems like a lot, but that's manageable for me over the course of the week to reply to that many people. And replying to that many people and talking to that many people serves my business in a positive way because I get to know what people are working on, what people are struggling with, what they like, what they don't like. And if, if we're talking again about, about metrics, to me, that's a good metric to look at is kind of like the engagement metric because it's people who are replying are the people who've read it or the people who have clicked over to look at a product or something like that. And it, so, it, it, so at the bottom end, it's reached a size where it generates a good amount of revenue for me, for my business. My business is profitable because of that. So that's good. But at the, at the top end of that, if I didn't have, uh, if I didn't have kind of a, an idea of what enough was, I would say, well, my newsletter at this size generates this much revenue. If I, if I doubled it, then maybe my revenue would double. Or if I quadrupled it, my revenue would quadruple. And that seems, I don't know, especially for my ego, that seems like, a, that, seems like that would be good. But if I did increase it over and exponentially over and over again, then I would start to get more replies that I would know what to do with. I wouldn't be able to reply to everybody. I wouldn't be able to know a lot of my customers by name and by email from conversations that we've had. I wouldn't be able to have that most important part of my business, which is talking directly to my customers, because I would have, my inbox would be so full. I wouldn't know what to do with that. I wouldn't be able to reply to that. It would add stress and overwhelm to my life that that isn't needed. And I don't know if it even would increase my revenue or anything else positive. So the growth there wouldn't make sense. So I don't need to focus on growing my list right now. Like I just need to focus on writing the best articles for my mailing list and then engaging with them. And in that way, yes, it does definitely grow a little bit because people share things that they've read on it that they enjoy. But since my focus isn't that, since my focus is retention over acquisition of the audience that I have, I'm I'm free to I'm free from worry of, well, I didn't grow it. Like I didn't add a hundred people a day this week. It's like I don't care. Like it's at a size that that's beneficial to me. It's at a size that it's organically grown to. That makes sense. So I don't need to focus on on growth. I just need to focus on keeping my audience happy and keeping them engaged and learning from them. And and in that way, it just it's just it it's one is kind of freeing, and that's why I work for myself in the first place is freedom. But also it it it, it has that like removal of of the stress or the obligation of well, it would be better if it's bigger. Well, no, I don't think it would be better if it's bigger. It's better if it's better. It's time for a quick break, but stay with me. After the jump, Paul and I talk about why an obsession with growth leads us down the dark path of forsaking our boundaries and why staying small is good for introverts who don't relish sales and self-promotion. This episode is brought to you by Harvest. What gets measured gets managed. So if you want to master the art of slowing down, it's essential to get a handle on exactly where you're spending your time. Are you investing a goodly portion of your day on meaningful projects? Or is your time being siphoned away by endless meetings and emails and chat messages? 
Harvest is a simple and intuitive time-tracking tool that shines a light on exactly how you're investing your time so that you can make more intelligent decisions about where and how you spend it. It lets you know which projects are creating real value for your business and which ones are costing you money. It also helps you monitor your team's workload so that you can make sure people are spending their time on the right things. It even helps you get paid. Harvest saves you time by automatically creating invoices based on your tracked time and making it easy to get paid online. To make the most of your time, visit getharvest.com slash hurry slowly to start a free trial today and get 50% off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Have you been thinking about pulling the trigger on a new online identity, but you just keep putting it off? Well, here's a little story about how I tricked myself into making a new website. Step one, I plunked down the cash to buy a new domain. Step two, I had some sweet new business cards made featuring my domain name. And step three, I then had to build the website and activate the domain or I could never give out any of the new business cards that I was so excited about. Pretty crafty, right? So if you're ready to take that first step to invest in a new online identity, the place to start is Hover.com. With 400-plus domain name extensions to choose from, you're sure to find a name that matches your passion. And lately, I've been feeling particularly fond of the .me extension. Why beat around the bush, right? Especially if you're looking for a domain to showcase your portfolio or your work as a talented individual proprietor. Hover also offers stellar customer support. They never try to upsell you. And they have nifty features like Hover Connect that make it dead simple to connect your domain to popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. You just touched on something that I wanted to talk about, which was this idea of it being more important to keep existing customers and to keep existing customers happy than to be constantly focusing on getting lots of new customers, which is, of course, being focused on growth, this kind of blind obsession with growth. And you, in the book, talk about how keeping a customer is just straight up better for your bottom line. How does that play out exactly? Yeah, and all the research done around... um retention over acquisition. I I think it's like five to eight times easier, faster, and cheaper to keep a customer than to go and find a new one. Because like, if we think about it, it just makes sense. Like if somebody's already bought something from us, they, they're already paying attention one, which is huge, especially nowadays. They've, they've trusted us enough to open up their wallets and give us some of their hard earned money. And it just makes sense from that point. Like I think if we break business down to its like most ridiculous simplicity, business is creating something for other people that they want to buy. And uh, the, the next step on that, one of two things can happen. It's either 
do those same people want to keep buying from us or can we find new people to also buy that thing from us? And the second is more difficult. The second takes longer. The second means you have to find and get the attention of new people constantly. You have to build that trust and and that rapport with them to make them want to say like, okay, I want this thing from you and I want this thing now. Whereas if the if you can kind of focus on those same people, it it's just a... I don't know, like for me, like this is how my business works. I kind of reach the same group of people and I just keep every year or two making new products for them. And then I look at like when sales come in, it's like most of the people that buy from me, I think more than 50% of people that have bought one thing from me about more than one thing from me. And so when I see the the PayPal or the Stripe um, payments come through, most of the people I'm like, I know that person. Like I've seen that person on like the community for one of my products or we've had an email exchange and I don't need to focus on, and this is good for me because I I'm not great at it. I don't need to focus on sales at that point because I built this rapport. I built this trust um, with my audience where I just really need to say like, Hey, this is something that I've been working on. It's available. Here's who it's for. Here's who it's not for. Do you want it? Instead of having to come up with some complicated selling way or 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 some way to get them like oh i really need to like prime them and get them like if you plop me into say a car dealership and said like hey paul go go talk to that nice couple over there and try to sell them a car i would fail at that so bad it would probably make for good television because it would be so horrendous right like i don't know how to sell like that i don't think a lot of people know how to sell like that i think that that's that's a skill that's just amazing to have that I absolutely completely don't understand. But the way that I do know how to sell is just by talking to people, by developing like a a cadence and a relationship with people where I'm just reaching the same people over and over again. We're just having a conversation. And when I have something that is available to buy, I'm just like, Hey, if, if this is what you're looking for, this is what I've got for you. And there's no sale. There's no pressure. There's not, anything like that. I don't, there's no undercoating. <laughs> I just need to basically say like, this is, this is the thing here. If you'd like it, great. If you don't want it, there'll be something else later. And, and that's it. And I think in doing so in, in focusing on um, retention over acquisition, it's just, again, it's, I think all of my answers so far have been like, <laughs> remove stress and responsibility. This is another thing that's just like, it's less stress to just kind of have conversations with people who already know you, who are already paying attention, who already probably like you, who already probably are, are rooting for you to succeed, who already trust you enough to give you money once. So they probably will again, as just an easier way to, to operate. Yeah. Well, and I think it's almost coming back to that thing we were talking about at the beginning. It's like, yes, it's less stress and it's, and it's easier and it's, it's an easier workload for you, but it also is like legitimately financially better to focus on this core group of people and to be building trust with this core group of people rather than trying to just grow, grow, grow and like build relationships at a rate that is really not sustainable with that same level of depth that makes people actually interested in, you know, buying the stuff that you're creating. But I want to come back to a word that's kind of come up a couple times so far, which is realistic, which is in many ways um, sort of a, a counterweight to this idea of more and this idea of exponential growth, right? And one of my favorite parts of the book is where you talk about some research around what makes people and what makes businesses resilient. And one of the key traits of resilient people is, and I quote, an acceptance 
of reality. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? <laughs> uh, that's a tough. That's a tough one because I think that uh, it was Dean Becker who's been studying resilience forever, and that's the the study that I quoted there. And he he found that, and and this is this is both interesting and and promising. I think for most people is that resilience is more useful that in business and life in anything than education, training, or experience. And I think it's good and it's optimistic because resilience, luckily, is not something that we're just born with. It's not just an inherent trait that some people have and some people don't, and that's the luck of the draw. I think resilience is is something that can be built. And the there's three parts to it. The first one, as you said, is acceptance of reality. And I think that that one especially is so important because we can't control everything. And I mean, this is not even just a philosophical, like there, there's no control in the universe. And it has, what is it like the second law of thermodynamics that everything moves towards um, entropy or everything moves towards chaos. Jurassic park is basically based on that premise, but there's not really much that we can control. Like we can stack the deck. Yes. Sometimes a little bit, but we don't have, like, especially when we're talking about, like, work and and seeing things because of the work we do. It's like, I can write a book and I can hope that it's, say, a New York Times bestseller. And maybe I have a back, like, catalog of maybe something did hit that list. And this isn't just me. This is just an abstract because I haven't had a book <laughs> on the New York Times bestseller list. But, like, there's so many little things that go into making some making outcomes specifically happen that a lot of times there's too many moving parts for things to be a hundred percent replicable or a hundred percent willing to happen. And I think it was um, in the Bhagavad Gita, one of my favorite passages from that is that we're entitled to the labor, not the fruits of our labor. And so we can do the work and we can, if we're happy doing the work, then that should be enough. And that should be, that should be what kind of drives and propels us forward because the, the fruits of that labor is really hard to, to control or, or to manage. So in accepting reality and bringing it back to resilience in, in thinking about how resilient people accept that we can't control reality, then there's kind of this idea that we can just do the work. And if we're happy doing the work, then anything that happens that, that's positive is a benefit right? It's just like when we were talking about setting these audacious goals and like, oh, maybe we only made $60 million instead of $124 million. It's like if we do the work and positive things happen, then it then that's a good thing. And it kind of ends there. The other two things are having a sense for resilience, having a sense of purpose, and um, having the ability to adapt because things, because we can't control everything, things are going to change all the time. And we have to be able to to roll with the punches and to adapt and maybe things don't go our way sometimes, but that's all right. If we can continue to like pivot or move or shift, maybe we, it's like changing copy on a sales page, or maybe it's, Oh, this product that I tried isn't working, but maybe I can try a different one. Maybe there can be um, like a, a new path for my career. I just think that in entrepreneurialism, especially this this idea that resilience is probably the most important thing just feels like it holds so much weight 
because it just seems like a lot of entrepreneurs that end up doing well are just the entrepreneurs that have been able to kind of accept like, okay, maybe this thing didn't work the next thing might or this thing isn't working maybe i can shift a little bit and try this try this other direction and it just seems like that's such an important thing to to foster it's such an important trait to work at in our lives yeah well and it seems like that quote that you were citing about being able to do the work and control the work but not the fruits of that work or the fruits of that labor really is kind of the crux of sort of your entire argument for the book, right? This shift from a focus on growth, on outcomes to, you know, really just enjoying the process and enjoying what you're doing and working in a way that's sustainable because this focus on outcomes essentially leads us to work in this way, to move through the process in a way that's completely unsustainable and draining and never really ends because we're setting these, these goals that are completely unrealistic. Yeah. If we don't take into account what enough is, then we're never going to stop chasing more, right? Like it's just, uh, it's just, but it's interesting too, right? Because in the beginning we have to adopt a growth. And I think this is where a lot, this is where a lot of things go off the rails for, for people is that in the beginning we have to chase growth because we have to go from zero to something. So every single person in a career or in starting a business or in doing whatever, we need to adopt a growth mindset at the onset. So we need to grow from nothing to something in the beginning. But where things go awry here is that we don't ever question. We, we assume that, oh, this worked to go from zero to something. So I'll just keep going. Like, unless we stop and think, and, and unless we stop and think about enough, unless we stop and think, well, maybe there should be an upper bounds on the, on this goal setting, or maybe there needs to be something put in the way of just endless rapid growth, then we're just going to constantly do that because it's, it worked for us. Like it legitimately worked for us in the beginning because it took us from nothing to something, right? So I think that the problem isn't that isn't that growth is bad. It's just that if we don't question when growth is right or wrong, then we just end up running at the horizon. Yeah, well, maybe that makes this a good point to talk about overcommitment. I think that one of the biggest challenges of being a company of one is that you have to get very good at saying no, right? Because you literally don't have anyone else to keep you focused. Staying focused is 100% on you and it's incredibly important because you are the person, the one single person who's creating all of the value that goes into the business. How do you personally think about opportunities and decide what to say yes to and what to say no to? Yeah. And I think like, you're right. It is one of the most important things I think in a small bit, I mm -hmm. think in any business, <laughs> having boundaries is probably one of the most important things because, um, yeah, like I said earlier, I think that every opportunity has, um, an attached maintenance cost or obligation or debt. I think that opportunities are really just well positioned obligations that we can take on that I think, and, and this is pretty much the, the, the main argument for, for the book and for how I kind of run my business is that I want to set my life up in a way where I have the choice 
And I, I think that being able to make the right decision is less important than just being able to have the ability to make a decision at all. And what I mean by that is if my business was huge or if my business was constantly growing, I would have to, I would be forced into making decisions around opportunities that just kept the wagon wheel going or kept the snowball growing as it rolled down the hill. Because if things constantly need to be growing, I need to therefore be saying yes to as many opportunities as possible. I need to be saying yes to basically everything. I need to basically forsake my boundaries in the hopes that the ends justify the means. And that's a that risk is not a risk that I'm willing to take. I think a lot of people assume that entrepreneurialism is risky. And I feel like it's it's only risky if you make it risky. It doesn't actually have to be risky. I'm very risk adverse um, personally. And so I think that in questioning growth and staying small and all of that, it it gives me, and this is why I like this, is it gives me the freedom to choose what opportunities make sense and what don't, like what debt do I want to take on? What obligations do I want to take on with, with an opportunity? And for me, it always comes back to, to, to the freedom aspect again. Like it comes back to, does saying yes to this thing, is that going to limit or increase my freedom in the future? And it's really like, for me, it's really just that. Like I'm so focused on that, that I'm always thinking like, okay, is this something that is going to make my life more free? Is this going to allow me to make decisions in the future? Is this going to hinder my ability to make decisions in the future because I'm just running down this path now and the snowball's growing and I just have to continue on, right? So like I'm always kind of thinking about about opportunities in that way. And I think that in, in saying no to things, in, in setting those boundaries, like it's funny because like we all have talked to so many people about this. Like we're all so scared of, of letting other people down. And I think that's really what boundaries come down to is we don't want to, we don't want to let other people down. If we say no to somebody, we're going to let them down. And that's, I think like it's completely understandable. Like it's human. Like it's, it's, I get it. But I think that if we don't set those boundaries and other people are going to set them for us, like if we don't set boundaries, other people are going to set them for us. And we're just going to have to hopefully be happy with where that line in the sand is drawn. Whereas if we set boundaries, yes, it can be scary, but then it just gives other people kind of like an operating manual for how to how to move forward in dealing with us. Like even something as simple for me is, is speaking engagements. People ask me like, oh, can you do a speaking engagement? My answer is always no. I don't actually like doing speaking engagements. I don't like the amount of travel required to get from the woods on an island where I live to basically anywhere. And it's a boundary that I'm that I'm happy to set, but I also make it so it's kind of a universal boundary. So I don't like to disappoint people. But if it's a if it's just a general rule in my life, like it's not me saying, oh, I don't want to do your speaking engagement. It's I don't do speaking engagements at all. That's just a that's just a thing that I don't do. And then it becomes far less personal to the other person because it's not like I'm not saying no to that person. I'm just telling them about a rule that I have in my life and in my work that that I that I just stick to. And so people tend to I haven't I haven't really run into very many situations, if any, where I've I've kind of established a boundary with somebody and they've been unhappy with that boundary. Most people are just like, okay. 
like it becomes such a non-issue even in when I was doing client work if I would tell people like I'm available from 10 till 4 I'll try to reply to email within a day somebody emails me at 2 a.m and I don't email them back it's like it doesn't matter I've set that boundary <laughs> like I have office hours just like most normal people in the world so in setting boundaries we feel we can feel so scared to set them at the onset but then the other party is typically just like, yeah, okay. Like it, it, it's just like, it doesn't even cross their conscious mind that there should be an issue there because it, there shouldn't be like other people can set boundaries and you can follow them. This is pretty much how society works when it's working. Well, and what about setting boundaries for ourselves? You said earlier, everything has a maintenance cost. Um, I actually did an entire Hurry Slowly episode around the importance of asking the question, can I maintain this uh, before you launch a new creative project? Mm -hmm. And I know that maintenance is a topic that you think about a lot as well, especially when you're working for yourself. It's incredibly important to regularly audit how you're spending your time and to prune away or to adjust how you're approaching certain projects. How, How do you do that? Yeah, it's it's hard because sometimes I I can't do that well until I'm doing the thing, like especially because my life is basically products at the moment. It's hard to know how long a pro- like what the maintenance cost of a product is going to be until I'm doing it. But because of that, I like to move a- as slowly as possible. So I'll try to launch a product that has as few moving parts as possible where it still works because I want to see like, okay, how, how much work is involved in maintaining this? Because if it's too much, like I have quite a few projects on the go at any given time, I focus on one at a time, but I have podcasts and courses and books and software and all of that. And I don't want, and I actually like having that. I like having the the variance in my life and in my work day to be able to work on a little bit of something, a little bit of something else. But if something take is starts to take up all of my time, especially I think for, for myself and for a lot of people that make digital products, it's, it's customer support. And I've actually shut down products that were profitable, but required more support time than I wanted to give each day. And I think in in looking at that, I think we have to look at like all aspects of a thing before we can judge whether or not it's working. Because if we just looked at revenue, then maybe it's generating revenue, but maybe we're doing 80 hours a week to to generate that revenue. And is that a success? To me, that wouldn't be a success at all. I wouldn't be able, like you said, I wouldn't be able to maintain that. Right. So it's kind of that constant dance between looking at how much energy you're putting into, you know, Mm -hmm. the entire project or an aspect of the project and then weighing that against, okay, what is the outcome? What's the benefit that I'm getting out of that energy that I'm putting in? Because as you, as you say, you know, I talked about asking that question, can I maintain this before you launch the project? But as you say, oftentimes you really don't know until you do it. And so there kind of has to be this assessment on a rolling basis. Like I described in that particular episode, you know, I thought the podcast would be X hours a week. It was in fact many, many more. And so, you know, my adjustment was, okay, well, I'm going to go from a weekly podcast to doing one every other week so that I can keep the amount of energy that I'm investing, you know, in line with the kind of benefits that are coming out of it. So you kind of have to think about that on a rolling basis. Exactly. And you have to make sure as well that you have the freedom to make those adjustments, 
right? Like you have to, like if you basically forced yourself into that and said, maybe you signed on sponsors that were paying for like six episodes over six weeks, then you wouldn't have been able to make that adjustment, right? So being able to have the ability to stay open and free to make those adjustments as needed, because we don't always know, I think is is really important. It's not always, we can't always do that. But if we can, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Trust has been a real theme in this interview, building trust with your customers, trusting in the power of a less is more approach, um, trusting in your personality um, to be part of your marketing. What would you say to people who want to strike out on their own but don't feel like they trust themselves enough yet? Yeah, it's funny. Like in high school, I was a kid that was basically picked on by everybody in school. It was (laughs) garbage uh, to be in high school for me. And I felt like, okay, my personality is like the most detrimental part of, of like who I am. And then I think it was probably three or four years ago, I did a survey of my mailing list. And it was just one of these questions that just like I added in at the last second, I was just like, oh, this would be interesting to know. And I asked people why they bought from me. Not why, not like, have you bought something? But just like, why like, why me? And it wasn't even just like, uh, like looking for praise. It was just like, I'm curious. Like, why do you want, why did you buy like a freelancer course for me when there's like a million freelancer courses? Or why did you buy a business book for me when there's like, I don't know, 13 million business books on Amazon? And the overwhelming response, and it wasn't even a response that I was I was prepared for, was that they bought because it was me who made it. It was me who was selling it. It's me who they had felt like they had built that uh, like trust and rapport with. And it was because they wanted like my personality's take on a subject. And so I think a lot of us can talk ourselves out of doing things because other examples of of it exist in the market. Like, oh, there's another business book. Why should I write one? Or there's another course on this topic. Why should I write one? And I think that that's a a bad way to, to do things. Like business would stop if that was the case. I think it is more important to think what can I what can I add to this? And I think we we talked about how ego could be detrimental um, in, in some cases when we're just chasing those vanity metrics. But where I think ego can actually be of use to us, use to creators, use to entrepreneurs, is in thinking that, hey, I can do something that maybe exists in the market, but I feel like I can do it better and not do it better for everybody, but just do it better for like a certain group of people, a certain group of people who might resonate with my message over somebody else's message or might resonate with the way that like my teaching style or my personality style over somebody else. And it doesn't have to be everybody. Like it doesn't even have to be a lot of people. It just has to be enough people where it makes sense on both sides to to enter into a relationship of commerce. When I was a little kid, I was really small. So small, the doctor suggested to my parents that they give me growth hormones so that I could get bigger and fit in better. My mom said no because taking hormones seemed like a rather aggressive approach when there was also the option to just wait and see if things worked themselves out naturally. And lo and behold, I turned out just fine. It took a while, but I am now a petite, but basically normal-sized person. 
Our natural impulse is to think that bigger is better, that more is better. And perhaps most of all, that doing what everyone else is doing is better. There's a pressure to fit in, to be normal. But the problem with exponential growth being the new normal is that you're trying to align your identity or your stature or your self-worth up to a measuring stick that never stops growing. It's like you're marking your height in a doorway every year as you get bigger and taller and stronger, but every time you come back to see how you're doing, the entire doorway has gotten bigger. Exponential growth isn't a recipe for success. It's a recipe for stress and disappointment. As the economist E.F. Schumacher wrote in Small is Beautiful, one of my favorite books of all time, any intelligent fool can make things bigger, more complex, and more violent. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. We talked a lot about working in a way that's sustainable in today's episode, a concept that I am incredibly passionate about. And in just a few weeks, registration for my new online course, Reset, will open to a new class. Reset is an antidote to the over-busy, over-stimulated, on-the-verge-of-burnout way in which so many of us are now working. It will teach you how to rebuild your daily routine from the ground up so that you can work in a way that's intentional, energizing, and inspiring. For a sneak preview of the course content, visit reset-course.com. That's www.reset-course.com for more details on my newest project. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. What's the best decision you've ever made? <laughs> to not hire any employees. <laughs> Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for composing our lovely theme music. If you feel like this episode gave you some new insight, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. I've put a link right down there in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening and remember to take your time.